Well, good morning, saints. Thank you. Uh, good morning to the rest of you. Yeah, particularly those of you who don't feel too saintly or identify as sinners. Good morning. A little announcement I want to throw at uh, you today. Uh, as you may well know, our uh, steering committee has decided uh, a while back that we want to uh, disciple and mentor uh, specifically ages from 18 to 25. And so we've made provision in our leadership that uh, we would bring four people on that would serve as a voice for the younger generation. Uh, although there's no legal vote, they are encouraged to give input and uh, will be mentored by a specific steering committee member. And so uh, last week they met and they, uh, a number of names were submitted and uh, four names were uh, elected, so to speak. And uh, to just bring it to your attention, uh, the four names are, one person is Kira Friesen, who's playing keyboards here today. The other one is Tristan Wanamaker. Uh, the other one is uh, Kareem Ashram and um, Gianna Weeb. Thank you. So uh, we're just thrilled that they let their name stand and uh, that we have a plan for the future. And we're pouring in and letting people see the governance and having a voice in the direction in the life of the church. So I'm just thrilled to throw that at you. Let's go a little bit further and uh, let's pray. So Father God, we just thank you that uh, we can gather today, that we can sing, that we can pray that we can encourage one another, and specifically that we can be encouraged by you. So teach us what it means to meet you in the most unexpected places. God, and I would pray that you would breathe your fresh wind in this place and open us up to your spirit. And may everything thought, everything spoken, and everything felt be blessed by you. Well, Christmas is coming. That could be a good thing, that could be a bad thing. If you're in my house, you don't believe in the December 1st rule before you set up Christmas stuff or play Christmas carols. Some other people hold fast to that tradition. No Christmas trees, no nothing until December 1st. But uh, it's fast coming upon us, and with that is all the craziness that goes with it. The stresses of finance, I'm pretty sure we're all aware of the stresses of travel, Weather, family concerns, poor health. Some people hate the hurrying around. Some people hate shopping. All right. Some people hate the dilemma of, of you know, you get getting something wonderful for that person, but, you know, not going too far overboard or under because of what that person might get you. You know what I'm saying? I think everybody hates the materialism. But most of us really don't know how to avoid it. That's my take on society. It's, and, and so it's no wonder that Christmas actually becomes a survival sport. That's where we're at. And so the series that we're doing over the next four weeks will hopefully give you some skills or perspective to surviving these holidays as they come upon us. And uh, the stresses that plague us uh, at this time are rooted basically in three basic uh, sources. Paying for it, getting everything done, and relationships. And it all adds up to dealing simply with the stresses of the holidays. Now, for each of us, Christmas carries its own stress. We all have different stressors. And, and none of us really knows, when you think of it, what another person has to deal with. But one fact is true, is that for many of us, if not most of us, Christmas carries stress. And, and for many of us, 
Christmas can actually simply be a hassle. Now, I'm not going to be a Grinch. I'm just stating the reality of, of what we go through. And for many of us, too often, we're actually relieved once the Christmas is over. And, uh, and again, it's not that we enjoyed Christmas. It's just that we actually just survived it. So I started doing some digging, and uh, I found that a survey that was done by the Retail Council of Canada said most Canadians plan to spend around 675 on everything from gifts to travel to food and entertainment, but 27% will spend over $800, while 23% will spend $200 or less. And I'm looking at that going, I don't know about you, but that does not make sense especially when you include travel and all this other stuff in it. So I had to do a little bit more digging, because stats are stats, right? You can make them say whatever you want. So I thought those numbers were a little bit conservative, and uh, I did some more research, and I found uh, Pricewaterhouse and Coopers, which is interesting. They published what is known as the Canadian Consumer's Plan to Spend. And uh, the Canadian consumers plan to spend slightly more than they did last year. So this was the most recent edition. And what they're saying, it's going to be an average of $1,563 per person. Let that sit just for a little bit. And I have to be honest, this actually makes more sense to me. You know, uh, uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers also mentioned that gift cards are growing in popularity, but millennials are more inclined to want to receive and to buy physical items. Just, just helping you out in your Christmas shopping, all right? Now, the, the, the holiday shopping trend shows the, that having the right promotion strategy, again, and mix of in-store products will help retailers provide a shopping experience that meets more customers, and I love what they say, needs. Is it really our need? Do we really need this? And again, PricewaterhouseCoopers says that the travel continues to make actually up the largest part of holiday spending, which is about 45%, followed by gifts at 41%, and entertainment at 13%. And when it comes to gender, these guys go out and they say that men, on average, are going to spend more. Men, will, men on average, will spend $1,752, while women will spend $1,385. Isn't that, that's where you get your $1,500 average. So they also report cats and dogs. They're going to be spoiled as well. Pet owners will spend an average of $65 on their animals over the holidays. Let it be known to my sons at home, that's not happening in my house. So where does this leave us today? I think without question, the most stress during this time is money, Right? And if you're our guest today at Seoul, this is your first time, welcome to money. You know, basically, money and church go hand in hand, pardon the expression, right? But basically, there's five things that we do with our money, and I believe this little formula applies to everyone, regardless of your religious or socioeconomic class. All of us fit into this category I'm about to show for you when it comes to our priorities with what we do for our money. Number one priority with our money, we spend our money. Number two priority is that we have to repay our debts, right? Our bills. Number three, we have to pay our taxes. We don't want to, but we have to. And it's funny, when the government owes you money, they sure take their sweet time in getting it back to you. But number four, if there's anything, if there's anything left over, what do we do? We save it, right? We put it up in the RSPs. We do whatever, you know, tax-free, whatever you do. And number five, 
we might give it away. Now, we have to ask the question, when we look at this list, who becomes the priority in this list? Well, first of all, when we spend our money, the first priority is me. When we repay our debt, our first priority, again, is me, because I have to get rid of this. When we have to pay our taxes, well, that's a we. That goes to everybody. We all benefit from each other's taxes, right? We drive on the roads. We do all that stuff. That's a we. If there's anything left over, we save it. Who's the priority in that? That's me. And finally, if we end up giving it away, it would be either to God or others. Are you tracking with me when I say that? So for most part, this is how we actually prioritize our money. And then what happens is, is that we pray then to God to help us with all these things. And I think it's interesting that when you look at this list, we see that God is at the bottom. And uh, again, as believers, sometimes we're praying, God, help us with our things. We need, we need your help, God. We need you to intervene. And yet we put his priority at the bottom. And I think sometimes he's listening to some of us praying, and he's looking at our priorities. And he's probably thinking to himself, oh, myself, I think they got the wrong list. Yeah, you're mismanaging what I'm giving to you. And so financial problems, when you think about it, always occur when we ignore God's financial principles. So I, I struggled with how I wanted to approach the talk today because the last thing I want to do with you when you walk out of here is add more stress. And when you talk about money, like, you know, again, people start tight, tightening up. I could have talked about budgeting. I could talk about avoiding debt. And, and, the, um, and again, it, it, we could talk about it's not about the stuff or intentionally slowing down or give you some great idea, ideas for inexpensive gifts, um, like making homemade gifts and give you a whole bunch of ideas on that or having, you know, a, a limit of one store-bought gift per kid or my favorite, you know, the different homemade coupons uh, packets that my kids make for me that are redeemable, like 30-minute back rubs, or my favorite, free IKEA assemblies. I tell you, I hold on to those cards, and I play them all the time. <clears throat> but I've chosen this topic not because the church needs money, but rather because your soul needs to be free, more free than what it is. And how we think rightly about our financial wealth is, is really important. You know, um, how do you think about money? And again, as a guest, don't get nervous. The, today's not Shakedown Sunday. That's coming. But, you know, it's, it's not what it is. We won't be patting you down at the front or at the altar. It won't happen. And this, isn't, this talk isn't about what you can give to the church today. Although we're coming to year end, I would highly suggest that you would consider Soul Sanctuary as one of your top giving lists with all the other emails and requests that you get your way. But I've chosen this topic because the church needs, not that the church needs money, but again, that your souls need to be set at peace. Um, the Bible has much to say on how we should handle the resources that are given to us. The Bible uses uh, certain words to describe the appropriate relationship that we should have with all things. The word that the scriptures use is called a steward. And uh, a biblical concept of stewardship refers to more than just how we spend our money. It actually encompasses much more than that. It talks about how we deal with our time, how we should handle our bodies, how we should handle our children and our talents, etc. 
Uh, so a biblical concept of stewardship is absolutely critical in our understanding of how we should rightly handle the principles uh, of these God-given resources that he's charged us to care for. And so with that in mind, this morning I want you to walk away with five biblical principles of stewardship that would help you consider where to, and I can say this, invest your money this December and beyond. Five simple principles. So you're going to walk out of here going, oh, that's kind of abstract. Yeah, that's the whole point. I want you to think. I want you to think about the fact that you're a steward. Well, what are you talking about? I want us to go back to Genesis chapter 1. And I'm going to ask for help, and my expectation is that you're actually going to give it to me. So that means there's going to be some audience participation here. So in Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26, um, you know, up to this point, God has been creating. And he's created all we know, all we see. There's this sweet rhythm of creation and, and declaring step after step that it is good. And we pick it up in verse 26, and it says this, Then God said, Let us... Again, there's that word, there's that Trinitarian concept, just throwing it out there. Make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may, what? Rule. Now, depending on your version, some will have, have dominion, right? But that they may rule over the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, over the livestock, over the wild animals, over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth and what? Subdue. Rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over every living creature that moves on the ground. God said, I will give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, and it will be yours for food. It doesn't apply to marijuana, just throwing it out there. And all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the sky and all the creatures that move along to the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw that all he had made, it was good, and it, there was evening, and then there was morning the sixth day. Now we jump to chapter 2, verse 7. Similar story, but with pieces that I want you to see. The Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye, good for food. In the middle of the garden there was a tree of life, the tree of knowledge, and the tree of good and evil. And then look at verse 15, because then we can stop and chat about this. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it, and take care of it. Now, what does this have to do with money? What does this have to do with Christmas? What we're reading here is actually known by several different names in the world of theology. It's, it's a cultural mandate. It's the creation mandate, whatever we want to call it. Here is the reality of the world in which you and I live, which builds up to my first point, is that everything is God's. Everything is God's. From the first pages of Scripture, we're presented with a world that is completely and totally 
gods. It is not and it has never been our world to do simply as we please. In Genesis chapter 2, Adam is placed in the garden. He's given responsibility to work it and to keep it. The garden was not his. Do you see that? It's very clear in the scriptures. But he was given the privilege. He was given the honor. He was given the responsibility of tending and not only just tending but benefiting from its produce. Adam sinned, right? Comes him and Eve are just like you and I. We do stupid things. We sin. We pay the price for it. The world changes since that day. But Scripture is still clear. When you look into Psalm 24, verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in the world and all who live in it. All that we now have, our money, our friends, our time, even our bodies are given to us for a time to do with as he pleases, and there is nothing that exists that is not his. This should be the orthodox, the traditional Christian view of who God is and who we are in front of God. It's all his. He's placed us as stewards over creation so that earth uh, and everything you have and all you are has been given to you and I by God for his glory. And if I can distill this even just a little bit further, you own nothing. Yeah, but I got a little thing that says I own like my house or my car. The fact is nothing you have is yours. Nothing I have is mine. We are a steward of it all. And according to the scripture, a steward is somebody who's going to be held accountable on how he or she stewards uh, what she has been given or they have been given. But it's all his and it's not ours. That's the orthodox view of who we are in this world. And when I mean orthodox, I'm not talking Greek orthodox or Ukrainian. I'm, t- I'm talking a traditional theological viewpoint. Now, I think it's weird for us to actually come to that because we are very material-based. This is mine. We see that developing with children at a very early age, they fight over toys, right? And you hear the word mine. It's mine. Well, actually, mom and dad bought it, but it's not, it doesn't really matter. It's weird for us. We don't like the fact that we don't own it. Why? Because we've worked hard for this. I've worked very hard for this. I've worked hard to be where I am. And, and yeah, you've worked hard with the mind that God the mind that God gave you, the body that God gave you. He sustained you with the air that he lets you breathe, and I can go on and on and on. Do you understand the bigger picture? There is nothing that you have that is not his. He's enabled you to do that. He's gifted you to do that. And that's why it's impossible for us to even think about trying to buy God off. We can't buy God off, even with our good deeds, never mind money. You certainly can't buy him by you know, just giving your money to the church or everything else just to ease our conscience. That doesn't buy him off. He cannot be bought. We can never put God in our debt. He is too big. He's too powerful. And everything that is, is his. That's how we have to look at life. In the parable of the talents, Jesus tells a story of a man going on a journey, and he calls his servants, and he entrusts them with his property. It's found in Matthew chapter 25. So the, really, the guy going on the journey is Jesus, and, and we are the servants, and everything we have is his property that he entrusts with us. And it's our houses, our jobs, our bank accounts. Even our children don't belong to us. They are God's, and he has entrusted to them that he has entrusted them to us for a time, 
Um, and again, it's easy for us to pay lip service to this concept, but it's more difficult to operate it on a regular basis in light of this reality, which now leads me up to point number two. And point number two is unequal distribution of resources is part of God's design. Now think about that for a second. No, 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 no. God's fair. God's fair. Really? God's communist? Everybody's all the same? Like we're all wearing the same stuff? Look at point number two. And let me show you how I want to highlight this a little bit. The parable of the talents, it continues in Matthew 25. It says, to one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, to another one bag, each according to his ability. And then he went on to his journey. Interesting. I think a lot can be taken out of this very short verse. But what's clear is that God intentionally doles out his talents that word talents, unequally. Not everybody has the same. Right? It's the same in our life today. Not everybody has the same. Have you ever met people who, after meeting them, you're confronted with the fact that not only are they smarter than you, but they're probably a far better athlete or a far better musician or they're even far better looking, and you just hate them? Yes. Yeah. Every day. All right. <laughs> Well, I say that sarcastically, right? <laughs> it's just the way it is. You meet people, but over time, as believers, the Lord should help us overcome our small-mindedness, right? Our selfishness. And I think really what we have to see is that, and if I can say it this way, is that inequality is part of God's design. It's not inherently unjust for someone to have more talents than us, to have more money than us, to have more whatever than others. But as his servants, we are to receive humbly what he has given us. Not begrudging those who have more or disdaining those who have less. Because we do that, right? Hate the rich, hate the poor. Or despise the poor. But that's not what we as believers are called. We have to remember that God is the source of everything that we get. But the real issue is not quantity, but rather the issue is what you and I as stewards do with the resources that are given to us regardless of the amount. Which brings up to point number three. What we do with our resources here will echo for eternity. I think this is probably one of the most important and misunderstood principles of stewardship in evangelical culture. How we steward our resources here on earth in the time and the space that God has given us has eternal impact. What we do with the resources he has given us can be used to, to bring people from darkness to light, from bondage to freedom, from God's wrath to his favor, any theology, any philosophy that emphasizes the earthly um, monetary payback as the sole motivation for, for giving now is actually hopelessly anti-Christian. I don't give to get back. That's not the reason I give. I give because I'm grateful for what I have. And I invest it 
in eternity. Yesterday I was at a funeral and we talked about legacy and what we invest. What lives on? What echoes in eternity? What of my financial investment echoes in eternity? You know, sometimes as a pastor, you, I can talk third person. Sometimes as a pastor, you sit and you wonder. No, sometimes as a pastor, I, I sit and I wonder whether or not the stuff that I do really matters. You know, does the stuff that I do really have an effect on people? Will the stuff that I say, does the stuff that I do actually make an effect in eternity? You know, from, from the fabrication of a facility to everything else that we do, what's the effect? All the money that we've raised, thousands, th- hundreds of thousands of dollars that are going to Africa, that are going to Indonesia, that are going to Russia, that are going to Ukraine, that are going to Brazil, that are going to the inner city. All Does this make a difference. It comes in and it goes out. It comes in and it goes out. And all I can say is that my hope and my prayer is that not only does God see my heart, he sees our faithfulness. And I may never see the results. So let me share with you just something, and I'm totally off script, guys. A couple of weeks ago, I have a friend in a, I'll call a restricted access nation where the gospel is not welcome. As a matter of fact, this country is in the news and there's a lot of persecution of believers. Churches being bombed, believers being pulled out of the car, being beaten up, and there's a whole lot of other things. So him and I made a relationship over Facebook uh, a long time ago. And again, I get this all the time and, you know, hi, pastor. Oh, can you send us money? Um, you know, it happens more than you know. But I made a relationship with him, and it was, it's been really great. And so the one day, and I'll never forget the first time, he says, you know, I'm meeting with my leaders. It's going to be a Saturday morning, your time. Can we Skype you in, and you just say hi? Okay, great. Well, Saturday morning, I play hockey. So I go to the rink, and I'm expecting this Skype call, and I got my phone ready, and I'm all doled up because we're about the puck, puck's about to drop, and I'm just outside, and I thought, you know, this would be really cool. I'm going to meet these leaders, and I'm going to say hi, and this is Canada. You know, here we are. There was a communication problem. He didn't want me just to say hi. He actually wanted me to teach his leaders. So here on the other side of the world are a bunch of people around a computer with an interpreter ready for the pastor in Canada to teach you, and the pastor shows up with his hockey gear, his mouthpiece, and everything else going, Hi! <laughs> Then we realized, I realized really quick, okay, I dropped the ball. So subsequently since that time, I've been able to say, okay, hey, pastor, what do you want me to teach on? And he would Skype, we'd Skype call, and I would do some teaching through a translator to another nation. Never met this guy in person, never met these people. All I get is the feedback. One day he contacts me. He says, look, we're not going to do anything on any social media. We're just going to have to talk, nothing written. I go, okay, why? He goes, well, because we want you to, he keeps inviting me to his nation. I keep going, no, I'm six foot four, 260, there's not a chance, I'm white, I'm dead. It's not going to happen. There's no way I'm going. I kid you not, I say that to him and he just laughs. You need to come. So uh, he goes, I have another idea. I go, what is it? Now get this. He goes, we're going to go to a town 
we're going to invite everybody to come. And you're going to preach. I go, I'm not coming. He goes, you're going to preach through Skype. And then you're going to do an altar call. And then you're going to do a call for healing. And then, and then you're finished. Really? This is weird. And then I realized just how, how much more progressive this guy is in ministry than I am. Just how much more hungry he is to make a difference. So I preached. And if you are on my social media, you probably saw, I took a, a, a screenshot of what was going on there. And it's, it's interesting because it's not like you're there with people. It's, it's very removed and you're trying your hardest to, to engage. And I, I, I studied, uh, I, I think this is probably the sermon that took the longest time ever. Because of the, um, I had to think about the cultural background that I was preaching to. I had to think about uh, religious connotation and overtone and what to say and what not to say. And, and actually simply preach the gospel so simple in English that the translator can articulate it very clearly and it would be missed. So I remember preaching and I, I you know, again, I asked for if there are people who, who want to give their lives to the Lord, just put up your hands and I want to pray with you. And, and of course I saw a couple of hands, you know, sort of going up. And, and then I said, look at after this. Uh, you know, we have brothers and sisters here who are going to pray for you. And, my, and I said very much like what we said here. And, and then I was done. And I said, okay, pastor, I'm, I'm finished. It's now you. And I clicked. A couple of days later, I get this message. Greeting to you, dear pastor. We have awesome report team uh, reached to the village, which is two, and 30, two hours and 30 minutes away. 149 souls get saved and give their heart to the Lord in the outreach. And some people were on the roofs and outside as well. And the Lord did a great work. Two people leave graves worshiping. That means they were deathly sick, um, which is an awesome thing. There was a person who had back pain from the last four years. He got healed, no more pain. There was a lady whose, whose arm was unable to move because of an accident. And she was able to move her arms. And the team checked with her after the meeting. And there was a lady who had a tumor on her stomach and she got healed. Or there was a person who can't see from one eye properly and he got healed. And there were 47 other testimonies, praise God. <laughs> Pastor, we need Bibles. So... Now comes the time of going, how do I get this money to there? And, of course, Steve Beal, who's on our steering committee, is in charge of our finances. Him and I are talking, and, you know, we're trying to figure out how do we get money to somebody so that they can buy Bibles. And, again, there's CRA restrictions and things that we can do in transferring money and, and who you're transferring to and how you fill out the forms and there's all this other stuff. And then, of course, we're able to get about $500 through a certain transfer company into his hand. And the guy then sends me a whole bunch of pictures of new believers getting their Bibles in a restricted access nation of life transformation. So what we do with our resources here echoes in eternity. What are we doing with our resources? What are we doing with our stuff? And again, it's not about what we get. We don't give to God for what we get. We give to God to make an echo in eternity. 
And, and with that view, and the view that God owns absolutely everything and everything that we have is, is his, Jesus goes on to teach us in Matthew 6, and we looked at this a number of months back, where two things that we need to consider when it comes to our money. He says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy, but where thieves break in and steal, but rather store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, your heart will be there also. You know, it, it, let's just start with that like that. This is just a great kind of life lesson. Don't make your treasure where people can take your treasure from you. Invest in places that can't be stolen from, where things can't be destroyed, where things can't be taken from you. Don't, you know, don't invest in, in, in those, those temporary things, but invest where you can have an eternal reward. And then there are shots fired by Jesus if you continue to read. You know, do you want to know where your heart is, he says? Look at your wallet. And it's interesting because what, is, what this just said is it doesn't matter what comes out of our mouth. This is Jesus talking. It doesn't matter what comes out of our mouth. But really what matters is what is our financial priorities. And maybe you're like, well, Jerry, I, I do love Jesus. Really? Well, you also love bo- boating and fishing, right? No, no, Jerry, I, I, what I, I really love Jesus. Well, no, maybe it's, it's golfing. Boating and, and fishing and golfing is, is awesome. They just make terrible gods. And you can put whatever else you want in those areas. And Jesus is saying, wherever your treasure is, your heart will be also. I'll remember, I'll, well, I'll never forget, my golf clubs got stolen right out of my garage. I love my golf clubs. I used to hate golf, hate it with a passion. But I'll never forget it. The one day I took it out of my car put it by the door of the garage, and I thought the door went down. It didn't. Somebody saw these clubs. It was a crime of opportunity. They walked in, they grabbed my clubs, and they took off. That's life. Was I mad? I I felt, nah. It wasn't my God. But it has, and it is, to some people. We get really bent out of shape. It's an inconvenience. It's an invasion. There's other issues that are there, but what is our God? Where's our heart? Jesus says where our treasure is, our heart will be also. And then we come to this weird section where he adds this. He says, your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. This seems a little bit out of place in this whole passage of Scripture, but there's really more behind the scene here. The analogy is, is that the human eye gives light to our bodies so that we can make careful choices in where and how we walk. And, and, and basically saying our spiritual vision affects how we walk and what we do with our lives, specifically in this context, according to our money. He's making a reference to an ancient saying whereby people used to use the phrase, if you have a good eye, if you have a good eye. And that meant if you're generous. If you had a good eye, you were generous. So, uh, again, if you had a bad eye, you were stingy. And that's what Jesus is playing with here in this context. And so when materialism and stuff is the focus of our life, especially at Christmas, our vision can become distorted. And when the things we see outweigh the eternal things that are unseen, we now have spiritual nearsightedness. The eye is the pathway in which 
light enters the body. It illuminates what is going on around us, in us. It allows colors and faces to come to light when we look at them. William Barclay, a great commentator, he said this. He goes, the idea behind this passage is one of childlike simplicity. The eye is regarded as a window by which the light gets into the body. The color and state of the window decide on what light gets into a room. If the window is clear, clean, and undistorted, the light will come flooding into the room and will illuminate every corner of it. If the glass of the window is colored or frosted, distorted, dirty, or obscure, the light will be hindered, the room will not be lit up. So then, Jesus says, the light which gets into any man's heart and soul and being depends upon the spiritual state of the eye through which it has to pass. The eye is the window to the whole body. I love that. And so the question then comes is, how is your vision? Do you see spiritual things clearly? Or is your vision uh, of God and his will for your life, is it clouded by spiritual cataracts or nearsightedness brought on by maybe an unhealthy preoccupation with things? And I'm convinced that it's true that for many Christians, particularly those living in, in the Western affluence, our eyes are cloudy. And I think what Jesus is do- doing here is he's teaching us a view, a different view of financial wealth. He's saying that how you see reality directly e- equates to the level of darkness you walk in. He's already helped us when he says, first and foremost, you know, treasure, store your treasures in heaven. That's what we do. The second one is money makes a terrible God. To pursue it, to long for it, to desire it, having it leads to all kinds of perversion, death, and destruction. And I think in some ways we can all relate to this parable. If the eye of our heart and mind is focused on earthly treasures, if that's all we're concerned about, our vision is going to be blurred and distorted and we will not be able to rightly distinguish the will of God for our life. Or we may not be able to see God as clearly as we once did. If our eye is bad, your whole body is filled with darkness. That's Jesus' words, not mine. And what happens in the dark? You stumble around the room trying to find a source of light, don't we? You ever do that and you can't find your way and you trip and you fall, you stub your toe and then what? You, you curse. But when our th- eyes are focused on the things of the world, when our eyes are bad, our bodies are full of darkness and we have a very difficult time seeing the truth. If our eyes and our heart and mind are focused on the Father, which is a totally different aspect, then we'll be in right standing with him. We'll be able to see and to know what he is asking of us in any given point of time. Therefore, if your eye is good, your whole body will be full of life. So I ask you again, how is your vision? Where are your eyes focused on? Especially as we're coming into this Christmas season. Oscar Wilde said this, and it's so true today. Nowadays, people know the price of everything and the value of nothing. You know, our vision is clear. It means that we're single-minded. We're fixed on eternal heavenly treasure. Are you into that? You know, the, the whole of our lives will be a full of light, insight. We'll have the ability, the wisdom, the desire, the will to make right choices in life when we're walking with God. But if our vision is clouded, then our lives are going to be flooded with darkness. We will either be going in a completely wrong direction or we'll be perpetually trying to go into two directions. And either way, we will be unable to fulfill God's purpose for our lives because these conflicting images overimpose one another. It all comes back to the beginning of the priorities. What are your priorities, and where is God on your financial priority list? Now, we do a financial planning course. This is the last Sunday after, the, after this gathering. 
And we'll do it again in the new year. But some of us have our, we're, we are where we are financially because our priorities are upside down. Again, you don't want to hear that at Christmas time. I'm just telling you what it is. You know, Jesus is teaching that a person's spiritual insight and his focus will determine their goals. And that their goals will determine their course of life. The end to which people press will always determine the character in their lives. What's our character? What's our goal? What's our purpose? What's our character? Where are we going? How do we handle the stuff that God has given us to entrust? And again, some of us are given a whole lot. Some of us, not so much. But how do we handle that? And if we pursue what is earthly or corrupt or temporary, our conduct in life will never manifest God's righteousness at all. We're not going to be pleasing to him. The perspective of faith we need at all times is a personal renewal, re-evaluation concerning who we are, why we're here, what's our responsibility. And this allows us then to develop new horizons with these goals and purposes. Only then will we be able to accomplish God's purposes and goals for life as his representatives. Remember in Matthew 6, Jesus says we're supposed to be salt and light. How do you do that? We need to be directed by him. We need to have him set our priorities. And then we come to a very pivotal point in this passage. You know, that this verse, in fact, is the climax of the Sermon on the Mount, in my opinion. And it asks the all-important question of who are you serving? And people often think that they can have the best of both worlds, right? Both here on, on serving themselves with riches and living it up, and later down the road in the future, which would obviously be in heaven. But in this passage, Jesus states that nobody can serve two masters. You'll hate one, love the other, or you'll be devoted to one, despise the other. You can't serve both God and be enslaved to money. So think about this, people. It's stress, it's Christmas, it's money, it's where it is. The decisions, the investments, the actions that we take here and now within our short, fragile lives, can and will have an impact on the kingdom of God that will echo for eternity. The money that we raised for Russia in terms of uh, building uh, chairs that much look like ours, they were able to actually manufacture a machine. They are now able to, when the money comes in, print, uh, print, build more chairs and sell them to other churches and other institutions so that the church can generate money because the Russian uh, economy is so very restricted right now. In Avonable, we gave money so that they could build greenhouses. I got some pictures already. They got these huge um, arms for their greenhouses. They're in the process of getting greenhouses. Why are they building greenhouses? Well, not only to feed the addicts in the rehab centers, but they want to take that, and then they want to market healthy, whole, organic food to the community, and thereby becoming self-sustaining, not only as just rehab centers, but to have then an impact in the community around them. Very much smart marketing, but they just don't have the finances and the wherewithal to do it. And so what do they do? We have relationship. They come here. We give the money. We have North End, family, uh, Living Word Temple. We have a food bank. Many of you bring food. Many of you bring clothes. And we thank you, and they thank you. And I speak on behalf of Paul Winter. We thank you for all that. However, you know, this Christmas, we're doing, what are we doing hampers? You know, should we do hampers? Do we really care? Let me tell you what we're doing. We did it last year. Operation Angel Tree. Basically what we do is we are given names of families where one of the family members is incarcerated. They're in jail. So we target that family on behalf of Living Word all around there. We provide gifts for their kids and we provide a hamper for food. And Living Word goes out and delivers it and builds relationship. Those are things that echo for eternity. 
You and I may never see it. We may give our 20 bucks, our 30 bucks, our 100 bucks, our $1,000, whatever God's given you to freely give away. We may never see the results of that, but I'll tell you, there is an echo in eternity that God will take our gifts, God takes our offerings, and he multiplies them more than we'll ever know. We need to get a proper perspective on what we're doing with our wealth. Number four, gifts are given for his glory and for the goods of others. I just said what it's all about. You know, multiple occasions, Paul refers to himself as a steward of God's grace. Um, He recognized the incredible gift of grace that he had been given uh, with the gospel. He felt a deep, profound sense of responsibility, and it drove him to go from person to person to person to person. And he knew that along with his gifts came that responsibility, and, and he's able to say that we are entrusted with this stewardship. He got it. You know, Peter does the same point in First Peter. He encourages the churches in Asia Minor. He says, as each has received the gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And this passage is clear. Every resource that we are given as believers was not given simply to complete, completely be our benefit. It's not about us. Sometimes in church we need to hear this. Look, at it's not about you. A blessing is received. It's also intended to bless others. A helpful analogy to help understand how Paul and Peter speak of gifts and, and abilities as distributed within the church is, is use it as in tools in the building of a house. Think about it this way. A variety of tools, hammers, nails, saws, tape measures, levels, etc. You know, if they were all handed out in church... What's our tendency? Is our tendency to take those tools, to polish them, to make sure that they're nice and they don't get scuffed or dirty? Or do do we take those tools as Jesus meant them to do and start building his house? They're going to get scuffed. They're going to get dirty. They're going to get broken. They may even get broken. But again, what's the stewardship that we do with what we're given? And finally, faithfulness is the key. Speaking of a self in in 1 Corinthians 4.2, moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. That was Paul who said that. The goal of a steward, remember, we're all stewards. Our goal is not notoriety or wealth or success or any other earthly measure of success that glorifies me, the recipient of the gift, above the giver. The goal of a steward is to be found faithful. Really, people, that's all God asks us to do. What's our priority, and how are we found faithful in all this? Are we trustworthy in all this by the one who made us the steward? And we go back to the parable of the talents. When the master returns to the servants, they're judged based on the talents that they were given. The first two servants come bringing their talents and the additional talents that they acquired in his absence. Each steward receives the same commendation from the master. Well done, you good and faithful servant. You know, those who have been faithful with a little, I'll, I'll send you over much. Enter into the joy that we have. You know, God... God just blessed us for you, or blessed these guys just for what they did, what they were given. The master knew the limits that each servant can handle. That's why there were different amounts given out. So what about you? Are you faithful with what God has blessed you with? Because we're all blessed. Oh, you don't know my debt. I don't know your debt. I don't want to know your debt. I don't need to know your debt, but I know somebody who can help you get out of debt. And ultimately, that somebody is God, if we make him our priority. And we have gifted people in this community, in this congregation, 
who will gladly walk with you, who will help you, who will guide you. But it's up to you to decide whether or not that you're going to make God the priority first or you a priority first. And I look at this passage and I think it's kind of comforting because I'm not going to be judged based on the skills, abilities, opportunities, and resources that other have, others have. God alone knows the gifts, the talents, the resources, the opportunity that he's given me. That's what I'm going to be accountable for. That's what you'll be accountable for. And my prayer is that we are a good and faithful servant. And my prayer for you is that you'd be found faithful. The Christmas celebration that we're about is not only about the moment. You know, Jesus was born 2,000 years ago, but it's also about that current moment of invitation to invest ourselves into his kingdom. How we respond to that invitation to follow him how, is how we prepare for our eternal existence, either with or without him. Christmas shows, it's this reminder, it shows us that God goes closer to us. So why? So that we can draw closer to him. It invites each of us to invest our lives in the kingdom of God. That's the purpose. And, and all that we have in life comes from God and can assist us on our journey eventually home to our Heavenly Father. But somehow, in our culture, we miss it. Our thoughts, our actions, are not always focused on the birth of the Savior. Rather, they're on the things that need to get done before December 25th. I'll say this again. In our Western culture of affluence, that is numb. God is calling us as believers to a radical life of service to him as our master. I honestly believe that God will take care of us and provide for all of our needs as he sees fit. But the temptation for us to hold on to things weighs heavy on us and it tempts us to trust our riches instead of trusting our heavenly father. You know, in the passages of scriptures that I quoted, we see an incredible call to serve our Father as His children, as His disciples. And this call is radical. We're called to give up ourselves completely and to place complete trust in the Father and to follow Him. We're called to deny ourselves throughout Scripture, which means that that self no longer has any rights. We are called to take up the cross, which means that we are to take that same path that Jesus took, being willing to lay down our lives for his sake and the sake of the gospel and others. Why? It's not about us. And Jesus wants all of our heart. He desires to have that intimate relationship with the Father as he does. And we can't serve God in the riches on this earth. It just doesn't work that way. One is despised or one is hated while the other is loved and followed. So whichever one you serve is the one that's your master. And if it's riches... Riches are your master and they have control over you. If it's the father, he's your master and he'll have control over you. So who are you serving? That's the conversation you need to have. Who are you serving? It's easy to see how Christmas, uh, you know, a holiday meant to celebrate the gospel, good news, and history can become the most busy and stressful and unenjoyable time of the year. And maybe you're here today and you're like, Jerry, I I don't even know if I can do with this, whatever you're talking. Or maybe you're here today and you have questions about God, you got questions about Jesus, you got questions about the church, you can't believe that I'm not actually shaking you down for money. 
Maybe you're here today, you're drowning in debt, and you have no idea how to get out. Maybe you just need a spiritual reset. And what I ask all of you to do is simply take out your phone, because you all have a phone now, but just take it out. Because some of you are going to use it, because every Sunday somebody's using it. A number is up on the screen. That number is, all you need to do is text the word soul to that number. And if you decide to do that, we will contact you personally. And so when I begin to pray and you want us to contact you for whatever reason, you'll get a little response from us within the next 24 hours where we want to pray with you. Sometimes we pray just even over text, and that's fine. Or we can call you and go from there. But uh, we want to pray for you. We want to answer your questions. We're not going to creepy stalk you. We simply care about your spiritual and your physical well-being. And we want to be able to be there to be a voice, to be a help, to be a hand to you, to help lead you and guide you in this journey we call life. We don't want anything from you. We want to help you. I'll guarantee you that somebody will respond personally because God uses others to reach out. We are waiting. This is, this is the hope. We are waiting for God to come and bring peace. And sometimes we forget that God has already come. He has already broken into our world. He's already shined a great light. He has already sent us his Holy Spirit in order that we may be the body of Christ in the world. That we may not just wait for peace, not even just make peace or work for it. That we may be, we may be the peace of Christ. Where? In our homes, in our churches, in our places of school, in our places of work, in our communities, and in our nation. Bow your heads with me. As I pray, and you just want somebody to follow up with what I said, maybe I sparked some stuff, just feel free to text soul to the number on the screen. Father, thank you for these men and women, and I thank you for the opportunity just to be read by your word. And I know that these things press on my heart. And so I pray that you would press them on the hearts of these men and these women. And I see so much conflict and loss even in this place where we're playing parts, you know, putting on the veneer, acting as though we are further along and more successful than we really are. But deep down, we're hurting and we're struggling. So God, help us with such foolishness. May we live to please you and steward well what you've graced us with for your glory and for our joy. And Jesus, you know our faults. You know our failings, our way, our, you know, how we're drawn by other things. The times when we fail to practice what we know, and yet you still love us, you forgive us, you're there to comfort us, you cherish us, you guide us, but we often forget these gifts and, and we stray far from you. So my prayer today is you would forgive us. Give us grace to love what you teach and to desire what you promise. In all the changes and chances of this world, may our heart be surely fixed where the true contentment, true life is found in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And I pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Why don't you stand with me? You got some things to talk about. If you have a moment, we're going to stack the last four rows for the next gathering. It just makes life a little bit easier for us. But in ancient time, the one who blessed extended his hands for a blessing. One receiving the blessing did likewise. Here's your blessing today, Soul Sanctuary. Go now. And take a hold of the life that is really life. Shun the eagerness for money, but be rich in good works. I love that line. 
pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. And may God be your refuge and fortress. May Jesus Christ free us from all that binds us. And may the Holy Spirit provide us with everything for godliness and the biggest word this Christmas season, contentment. Go in peace. Love, serve the Lord, and be the church. See you next week. Amen.